are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study with the Evercatinos. And we're picking up this evening on page 370 with number six towards the bottom of the page. And every week is. we come across something that's strikingly beautiful, but also intensely challenging, and um, and which I, I think would be true and should be true for us every time we pick up the scriptures and, in particular, read the Gospels. That we are presented with a way of life, uh, looking at ourselves, the world, others, our relationship with others, but most of all, God. How we see God uh, is challenged and how we understand what it is to love and give ourselves in love of others. And uh, perhaps when we're brought up Christian, we begin to take some of these things to gra- for granted, or they seem so familiar to us. But uh, as we go through the fathers, they're so deeply rooted in the scriptures that they make them come alive for us. And tonight, as well as last week, we will be discussing, uh, we've been discussing uh, uh, not engaging others in a contentious fashion, you know, not purposely set, setting out to contradict others, not willfully uh, putting forward our point of view as though our dignity, our value depends a, a, upon doing so. That we have this tendency, I think, sometimes in our relationships with others to put ourselves forward in such a powerful way that we want to gain a position of emotional power within the relationship. And we might not even be conscious of doing that. Uh, I think we sort of pick it up along the way that the way that we talk to others, the way that we express our opinions, we can do so without really listening to the other person or seeking to understand uh, what their view of things is and uh, uh, and uh, how they understand things, but rather we're trying to uh, put forward our idea and to have it be embraced. And so what we're covering here tonight in the writings of the fathers is uh, seeking to engage others with uh, a humility uh, that really does allow us to suspend our own judgment, uh, to set aside our own point of view, and to give primacy of place to to love and to charity, not letting anything undermine that for us in our relationship with others. And this comes forward in the very first uh, saying that we're going to look at tonight. Again, for those who just joined, we're on page 370, number six at the bottom of the page. A brother asked Abba Poyman, how am I to conduct myself in the place where I live? The elder replied, wherever you live, you should have the attitude of a stranger so that you may not seek to have the first word and you will find rest for your soul. So it's an interesting way uh, of looking at life that we would see ourselves as strangers and uh, that as we enter into conversation with others, we would not uh, fall into a kind of familiarity Uh, or a certain kind of comfort that might lead us to set aside uh, the feelings, the sensibilities of others, and to willfully put forward our point of view. So Poyman tells him to take on this attitude of a stranger, and don't seek the first word. 
allow yourself to follow along in the conversation and not immediately jump to taking the lead. Not certainly that there's anything sinful about that in our conversation with, with others when it happens in a natural way. But I think because of our uh, pride, we can often jump to that position of wanting not only the first word, but the last word of every conversation uh, in order to make sure that our point of view is understood, accepted, or em embraced. And so as a stranger, for example, you would never enter into someone else's home, or maybe people would today, but in any case, you would never enter into a person's home or into a monastery and immediately go about setting things aright. Well, you really should be doing things in this way here in the monastery. You guys eat way too early and you don't pray enough or you should pray at these times of the day. That nobody would think of, of doing that or entering into somebody's home and uh, criticizing the decor or the way that they go about keeping their home. That we should always have this kind of humility, gentleness, tenderness towards others. Again, where we allow love to trump our point of view. And sometimes we can hold on to that fiercely, uh, even when it comes to things of little import. Uh, and we will sacrifice charity in the process. And what we will find in the writings uh, of the monks here tonight is that they're willing to take this to the extreme, that uh, a submitting of one's judgment in, in all things, again, uh, in order that charity might prevail above everything. And in the past, we've talked a little bit about uh, this practice of St. Philip Neri, you know, where they would put to a proposal of a doubt, a theological doubt, uh, a, a kind of question about the teachings of the church that is complicated or about the spiritual life. And they would go around the room, if you remember, from senior to junior and offer their opinion. And each person would begin with the little saying, I agree with everything that has been said, and I might only add, and then add their opinion. Or they might pass if they feel they have nothing to say, or uh, if they feel that they can't say something along those same lines uh, in order to preserve charity, that Philip wanted this to be an exercise for them, uh, an intellectual exercise as part of their meals, but not uh, ever be something that would uh, sort of uh, foment uh, a, a kind of, of pride in the hearts of those engaged in the process or, or anger or contentiousness among them. Uh, in fact, they should try to avoid controversial issues uh, and, uh, but maintaining charity uh, certainly would be the primary thing. And uh, these are the kind of sensibilities, I think when we think about formation, whether it's in seminary or formation in families, that we would want to foster this kind of deep respect for the other and avoiding contentiousness. And uh, I think in our society, there is uh, a kind of habit that is developing everywhere, you know, not just in social media, but I think in engaging others of setting aside that respect for the others, for the other very quickly and being aggressive uh, passively or uh, overtly uh, aggressive uh, in what we say and what we do and giving no mind to uh, how it might be received by another. And, uh, and so one has to begin early in doing this uh, and showing this kind of respect for others, including one's elders, even a simple greeting. I remember being in college, I was in this business course and uh, uh, the, it was uh, like the psychology of business or something along those lines. And, uh, but um, the professor was talking about greeting others when you enter into a meeting for the first time. And he talked about shaking hands. And uh, a young woman in the class, not to pick on, on her in particular, but she rose, rose her 
hand and said, said, well, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. I think that's sort of a patriarchal, you know, archaic practice of shaking hands and that we shouldn't be compelled into doing this. And uh, even as an undergraduate, I was thinking, you know, it's really just showing, it's making a point of contact with the other in a physical way too. And I think in the history of it often is to show that one doesn't have any weapon in one's hand, uh, that one would join hands. But I think in a, just in a more on a more practical level, it is a way of making this connection with people, of showing respect and courtesy. And so fundamentally, you know, we're certainly going beyond that in, in what the fathers are going to teach us here. But this is where we begin. Uh, to foster this kind of habit of mind and behavior. Uh, St. John Henry Newman uh, talks in some of his writings about the Catholic gentleman, you know, one who would never want to cause another person harm or discomfort, displeasure in any way, that our charity is such that we would be attentive uh, above all to how another person is feeling in our presence and uh, how they would ex uh, feel as they would leave our presence as well. And, uh, and again, I think this is something that we need to foster. And if we tie the, the word Christian to it, it means that we're going to even go to greater lengths to maintain that charity. Number seven, Abba Poyman said, do not fulfill your own will. It is necessary rather to humble yourself before your brother. And so, again, a setting aside of willfulness uh, in order to elevate the other, uh, not only in one's eyes, but uh, again, to uh, give them the, this experience of being respected and loved. And this doesn't mean and I think people often fear this, making oneself the doormat of others or refraining from ever offering our opinion. It's simply uh, allowing ourselves to embrace the truth of the dignity of the other. And that, that dignity is to be held as something that is precious and to be protected, uh, especially as we enter into a relationship more deeply and uh, intimacy develops and a person is more vulnerable and maybe reveals what is in their mind in our heart and their heart to us, that we would hold that as precious and guard and protect it and not abuse uh, that vulnerability uh, that they, they have before us, their willingness to, to share the truth about themselves with us. And so often that kind of confident, confidentiality or that gentleness is sacrificed uh, for one's own purposes. Uh, Sue and Mark. Sorry. Um, so the question that I have about this, and, um, and there may be, uh, have been a misunderstanding. I was speaking to uh, a cousin of mine today and reading something to her very um, similar to this where, um, in all things, you you don't fulfill your own will, but to let the other person um, have the forefront. And she had a question I couldn't answer, and I don't know how to answer. So um, maybe this can be answered here. She gave me a for instance. Um, but what she basically said in conjunction with that was, um, so they have this car and there's trouble with the transmission. And her husband was going to just, I'll be fine. I'm going to get a new transition cap because they found that was missing. I'm going to fill it with fluid and it will be fine. And she said she could have um, stepped back and kept quiet and not fulfilled her own will and gone ahead and let him do that. But instead, she felt very strongly about taking this car in to have it looked at. And indeed, and so she insisted and so indeed, it turned out that there was something more wrong with the transition, mm -hmm. the transmission. So she asked me about that and said, now, if I had done what was said in the Desert Fathers, 
we would have had eventually a pretty bad expensive repair and in this way we don't so how does that play into some of these concepts or is it not related at all oh it's definitely related and i think if we were to take the broader view uh, uh simply at looking how the fathers understand discernment and circumstances of our day-to-day -day life how is it that we know that something is from from god or is the path to be taken forward or if it's something that arises out of uh, a willfulness on our part or is rooted in the truth and for the fathers the broader picture is that discernment is the fruit of purity of heart that we've entered into the ascetic life the life of prayer fasting the study of the scriptures the fathers all the things that form the the the, the mind and the heart and our sensibilities our sensitivities uh, so that the broader picture then is that in these day-to-day -day experiences, the pure of heart is going to be able to enter into circumstances like this, where say one has an underlying concern, which she had about the, the car perhaps needing greater care than just putting a, uh, did you say a distributor cap? It was a transmission cap. Transmission cap, whatever that might be. I'm not, uh, I have no knowledge of cars, uh, but, uh, that you know one could put forward that concern and do that with charity without humiliating the other and certainly in this relationship that she said it's with her husband you said correct right so that there is a bond of love that exists there that uh not only allows for that freedom but would demand it you know that there would be a kind of truthfulness and trust that one could share one's thoughts with the other and one isn't necessarily doing that in a willful way, but as you said, because they have this sense that there might be something else that needs to be looked into. I so it doesn't need to lead to ill will, right. but uh, uh, just one more thought, but that if we see it in the larger context uh, and, and not abstracted from what we're looking at in, in the father's writings as a whole, is that we are seeking to form and conform our hearts to that of Christ. And so to love the other. And so in whatever interaction it might be, we would not be willful in the sense of seeking to gain a position over and above the other. And often what drives us to do that is a kind of egotism, self-centeredness, Whereas if a person's heart is pure, then, you know, in love, they could tell another exactly what you just said. Well, I have this th thought that we really need to take this in so we can see if there's any greater problem with this. And so, so I think it's, and it's part of the reason that we read the fathers in the way that we do so that we don't, we don't want to take things out of context as we're uh, going through this. I think even as we read each of these hypotheses, we would see it within the context of the full volume and all four volumes, that what is being put before us is really the gospel in its uh, in, a, uh, in a living fashion, that they are living icons of the gospel as we are to be. And so what they're putting forward for us is what is a Christ-like love and humility. And we know what that humility and uh, meant for Christ, uh, that there was no, no one more innocent, no one who saw the truth with greater clarity than he. And uh, yet he allows himself to embrace what the world throws at him, even lies, without responding to it uh, with anger and hostility. And for all of us who, who know a kind of weakness, you know, or struggle with concupiscence, weakness of will or darkness of intellect, that often we will choose that path uh, more in a defensive way. Uh, again, trying to protect our way of viewing things 
or to assert ourselves at the expense of charity. Now, you know, a wife could say that to her husband in a belittling fashion. Well, you fool, you know, don't, don't you think we should take this to the shop? You're going to end up costing us $500 just because you were unwilling to do it in the first place. And obviously there would be a big difference between that and saying, saying it with, you know, gentleness and love. And I think that that was really, as the conversation went on, was the key word was discernment right. for her. Was where could you use discern, you know, the use of discernment? Right. Know? And, you know, it's interesting. I, I was reading about discernment today. Uh, and in fact, John, John Climacus is writing on discernment. I was reading about uh, because in our day, I think discernment has so often become uh, like our own point of view or our opinion. And we don't necessarily have the skills or the understanding about how it is that we determine if something is from God, simply from ourselves, or, or worse, from Satan himself. How, how is that, that that takes place in our life? Is it really, is it only a matter of reasoning through things and uh, in terms of what we see? Or is it something that's rooted in uh, something that's far greater? which I think the Desert Fathers put before us, which is this purity of heart, a heart that is wholly given over to God, that's been purified of the passions, that who, whose eye of the heart, as they call it, the noose, has not been darkened by sin, and so can see things with a kind of clarity. And uh, it's one of the beautiful things, I think, in reading the, the writings of the Eastern Fathers, is that they, they put before us this view of discernment that ties it back to the practice of the faith and of entering into that relationship with Christ and seeking purity of heart. It pulls, it, it pulls the mind into the heart. It's not, it pulls us away from thinking about things in an overly intellectualized way. It doesn't say that reason uh, has no part to play within it. But it's acknowledging the fact that it, it is through grace that discernment is born and through entering into that relationship with God so deeply that the heart is purified. And we often will limit it again to reason, our point of view, our private judgment. Okay, thank you. Louise has a comment here and then Carol, I'll come to you. Uh, Louise wrote, could we say that when meeting someone, shaking hands indicates a willingness to welcome the other, to allow a certain form of intimacy and to trust that the other is clean, especially 100 years or more ago when hygiene was questionable, right? And, you know, in our own day, you know, we do that touch with the fist and all that kind of stuff since COVID. And, uh, and so that's broken down even more. And... Uh, uh, even things like eye contact now, uh, it's this interesting thing when you, you're walking through a, a busy place or a store or even going to the grocery store, you know, people will not make eye contact or even give the typical greetings of the day, good morning or how are you? And uh, we sort of pull into our little world and put our defenses up. And put as we were talking about putting out the hand is, you know, showing it again, a kind of openness, but that there isn't any ill will and uh, ill intent there. And so recapturing some of those things uh, and especially looking somebody in the eyes is a kind of respect for them as a person, you know, to engage them directly. The eyes reveal a lot about a person. Carol. Um, thank you, Father. Mm -hmm. um, your conversation with Sue just reminded me of two things um, that I just want to mention briefly. And the first was that um, when we were reading the chapter in Climacus about mm -hmm. lying and truthfulness, right. um, you know, he threw in that caveat that you should never lie, but if you have purity of heart, then do as you please. Mm -hmm. And so he he gave you that exception because basically saying the same thing that if you have purity of heart then your discernment um will put you in a position where you can judge clearly 
whether or not the truth ought to be told in that circumstance. And then the second one was just a quote. I think it was discussed in one of our groups, maybe by St. Augustine, something along the lines of love God and then do as you will. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know if I'm remembering it exactly correctly. So yeah. that's, that's what it says, love and do what you will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and often quoted <laughs> saying of Augustine, but uh, often one that I've been a little bit worried about too, love and do what you will, again, could give rise to a kind of license. And I think Augustine would, again, have this sense of, uh, again, a, a heart that has been purified or a love that has been purified, uh, that seeks the will of God as well as the good of the other. And, uh, and so, these circumstances of our day-to-day life, again, we don't want to abstract from how we live our lives as a whole, and more importantly, that we don't abstract them from our relationship with God specifically, that it's only in and through that relationship with him that we have the grace uh, to be able to discern how how to engage people or the complex circumstances of our day-to-day life. Okay, number eight on page 370. A brother asked an elder, what can I do to be saved? The elder replied to him, go and join him who says, what need have I? And you will have rest. That is, imitate one who does not want his own will, but says, I do not desire anything, and you will be at rest. And so... Again, I think we want to see this in the context of all the things that we've been talking about over the course of these years, that for the fathers, that uh, our life is really rooted in desire uh, by the nature of our being created in the image and likeness of God, that within us there is a desire for he alone who can satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. And uh, so I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's only in Christ that we find the satisfaction for what we long for most as human beings. Uh, And until our hearts have been purified and begin to long for and desire things in the rightly ordered way, Uh, then setting aside our own will and setting aside our earthly desires allows the heart to be purified, that we become detached from the things of this world in order that we might become more attached to that which endures eternally, the love of God. And so it's not demonizing creation or seeing the things of the world as evil, but it is acknowledging our weakness and a weakness that is rooted in our sin, that we will turn uh, material goods or others or the, the way that we enter into a relationship with others as ends in themselves. And so we begin to use the things of this world, including others, to satisfy our baser needs. And, uh, and so, if you want to be saved, the elder tells him, find one who says, I, uh, what, uh, what need have I? Ask him, what need have I? Or what he, he says, go and join him and says, what need have I? And you will find rest. And I do not desire anything and you will be at rest. So one who does not desire anything in this world desires the one thing necessary. Uh, that like Mary of Bethany, having eyes only for Christ, that becomes kind of blind to what's going on around her because she has he who is life and truth before her, speaking to her. So she's captivated. Her mind and her heart is captivated. And remember the story, you know, Martha becomes agitated, uh, not because she lacked love, but on some levels, she lost sight of who Christ is, that here she's set upon preparing a meal when he who is the, the bread of life and who nourishes us upon living waters is sitting in their presence. Mary understands it, 
And so she's sitting there. Martha becomes agitated and rebukes, uh, in fact, not simply her sister, but rebukes the Lord. Tell her to get up and help me. And so uh, her heart becomes agitated because she loses sight that of the fact that Mary is being nourished from something that should not and cannot be taken away from her. And uh, if we think about even our day-to-day -day life, upon what we nourish ourselves, you would think this one story uh, would shape our lives in a radically different way. And in terms of how we spend our time, whether it's in the reading of the scriptures or in our prayer or in our loving of others, serving of others in a Christ-like fashion, that if we understood that these are the ways that we're nourished unto eternal life and that we are brought into this deep communion with the Lord, then our life would revolve around that reality. We would choose the, be the, the, the better part. Uh, and... Uh, but so often we get caught up in the pursuit of our own uh, desires or what we in our own judgment think is important or are told is important by the world. And so we give the larger measure to those things. And I think like Martha then, we can become agitated when we find ourselves consumed in those things and even isolated by them uh, and uh, want to draw others into it then. And the, the Lord is not, he's not sort of taken in by the complaint, if you will, that he acknowledges and understands why she's agitated, that she could love perfectly in doing exactly what she was doing, which was providing this hospitality for the Lord. Uh, but uh, not seek to pull a, one away who's being nourished in a different and even fuller fashion. And, um, and so, again, you know, when we think of our life as a whole or we look at this saying, we don't want to read it myopically or see it myopically of saying, well, we are to have no desires, and so we're to be stoics and not have any feeling about anything at all. It's not what it's saying. It's meant that we are to be uh, uh, men and women of strong desire, but that that desire is directed toward God, and that we even see within our bodily desires our greater desire for God, that they mirror that. And insofar as we are doing it in a way that's pleasing to him, then it draws us closer to him. And uh, so there should be nothing in this world uh, that becomes an obstacle or an impediment to our loving him that he's given us, so long as it's taken up uh, and in accord with his will and in accord with the nature of, of what, what it is that we have embraced or what's been given. And uh, so often, I think at this point, it's not how the mind and the heart works. I think we are men and women in our day, I think, driven, and certainly it's true in every age, but I think especially in, in our time, it seems to be driven by the appetites, driven by the desires in an indiscriminate fashion, one that lacks discernment. And so how do we get back there? And it's my firm opinion that we get back there through, through the Gospels and through the Fathers, you know, those who lived it in a radical way and experienced the fruit of it. Okay, any thoughts on this saying before we move on to the next? Okay, number nine. An elder told the following parable so that his disciples might understand what humility is. Once upon a time, the cedars said to the reeds, how is it that although you are weak and feeble, you do not break in winter? Whereas we, although we are so large, are crushed and at times uprooted. The reeds answered, 
When winter comes and the winds blow, we bend with the winds, this way and that. And this is why we do not break. But because you stand up against the winds, you court danger. The elder then concluded, we should defer when people insult us and give way. We should not contradict them, nor should we fall into inappropriate thoughts, quarrel with them, or cause trouble. Uh, a beautiful little parable, bend with the winds. You know, be like a, a, a reed with it within the wind, that we can move with it. And we have some give within us that we aren't digging in our heels every time somebody insults us or puts forward an idea or a thought that is contrary to our own. Because the risk, the elder tells us, is too great there, that one would fall into inappropriate thoughts, quarreling, cause trouble, that the agitation of the heart could be great within ourselves and other, that we could not only fall into sin ourselves, but lead another into sin by, by not being willing to yield. That what, what is it that is so great that we cannot sacrifice our own opinion. You know, why is it that we value it so highly that if we were to let it go, you know, whether it's about politics or anything, if we were to let it go, what, what in the end is that going to cost us to our own dignity? Uh, we might find a, a person who is unyielding or unwilling to accept what we say. We might take an opportune moment to clarify misunderstanding about something and have it be rejected, but we've put, put the, the thought out there, but then be able, you know, this parable tells us to be able to walk away and not think that the truth depends upon us. If the truth is a person, if it's Christ, then that truth depends upon Christ himself upon moving the heart and giving light. We can have a role to play within that, but it's usually not bashing the person over the head or arguing with them to the point that we break down charity uh, that a person is drawn to the faith. I always love Cardinal Newman's uh, quote about this when he says it's an abs as absurd to think that we can argue a person into faith as torture them into the faith. And this is from one of the greatest intellects of the 19th century. You know, I think certainly up there in terms of uh, as theologian, as uh, uh, historian of the faith, you know, of, of one capable of articulating the faith with incredible clarity that here's Newman saying, you know, that it's an absurdity that we think we can argue a person into the faith because it's a gift from God. We can bear witness to that faith and most of all, by how we treat others and how we love them. And we can uh, clarify wherever there is ignorance, but certainly humility above everything is going to have the, the greatest power. It's interesting when we get into some of the, the later stories in this hypothesis and the next, it talks about the humility of a particular individual being able to work these wonders. So a person doesn't say anything or do anything. It's simply by the virtue itself that is so perfected and so conformed to the humility of Christ that, that it works wonders. It's sort of like P St. Peter's shadow healing a, a person uh, as he walks by, that this person's virtue has the, the capacity to, to do that as well. And so, you know, part of it is certainly our lack of humility, but lack of, of faith in the grace of God and his power to move the human heart. We often will, will say to ourselves and rationalize that we are defending the truth, that we are defending Christ or that we're defending the church. And, uh, you know, that can be begin, I think, with uh, something that is rooted in, in love, but it often devolves into a kind of obsession 
that allows us to rationalize anger and hateful feelings and quarreling with others. And so it really does require that we sit with little parables like this, just like we sit with the parables in the gospel to say, you know, are we those who are able to bend with the wind, with the insults, the aggression of others, or do we imo immediately move to the defensive position and have to assert ourselves aggressively on an emotional and an intellectual level in order to feel strong? And here, you know, the reeds are saying, well, you think you're strong, but uh, how do they, they put it here? You court danger when you try to, to stand up to the weather or to the snow. And so often we do the, the, the same thing. We court danger by asserting ourselves in this aggressive fashion for the sake of the truth or the sake of the good. Why is letting go so hard? I think my answer to that would be the ego. You know, I think it's, you know, it takes hold of us and it will seek to reassert itself at the soonest possible moment. And it's, uh, you know, Jeremiah's thought there that the human heart is a treacherous thing who, who can trust it that uh, often we will betray ourselves. And whenever it comes to something that serves our own need or our own wants, the ego will jump back into the picture and we will seek to assert ourselves. The fathers say, even when it comes to something like a needle, you know, that we will cling to it as our own possession, even though it's completely insignificant. And we will cling to it to the, you know, to the death, uh, just to you know, assert that it's ours. Number 10, two elders lived together for many years without ever quarreling. It's sort of a miracle in and of itself. One of them said, let us argue for once as people do. The other elder replied, but I don't know how to start an argument. The former then said, look, I will set a small brick between us and say that it is mine. You will immediately respond, no, it's mine. This is how the argument will begin. <laughs> it's almost hard to read this without you know, bursting into laughter. The first elder placed a small brick between them and said to the other, this is mine. No, replied the other, it's mine. Then the former said, if it's yours, take it and go. They departed, being unable to quarrel with each other. <laughs> For some reason, it strikes me as the funniest story that we've we've read uh, in all these these texts. You know, two people who didn't know how to quarrel, uh, but it's it in its humor. Uh, that's right, the, uh, Ambrose. They they just needed Twitter. For somebody else to join in to show them how really how to do it uh, but it's funny you know even as they do it and they set up the means to do it you know uh, a concrete object in fact a brick you know something ever so concrete that they could argue about as belonging to them and because they were so detached in the way that we've been talking about that they, they couldn't even bring themselves to do it that it was of so little significance to them that uh, they could not even understand why people would quarrel or how they would go about it. Would the things would be, so, uh, you know, even in a small measure between us. Because uh, again, we'll off, often argue over things far more, far smaller than a brick. Okay, from St. Ephraim. Uh, letter C, always, again, one of the, the great writers, as, you, as you've probably seen as we go through this, he always brings a certain clarity uh, to each hypothesis. If you want to live with uh, other brothers, you should not desire to give them orders, but rather to become an example for them of good deeds, 
being obedient to them and everything they say to you. So it's, you know, not to want to order people around. And it's interesting, the mind drifts back to some of the earlier hypotheses about, you know, one who's put into that position of being over others, where others are to live in obedience to them, that they are to correct and guide and direct, not through words, but through their own obedience, through their own living it out, through personal example. And again, that's something hard to wrap our minds around because we've often seen obedience as precisely what Ephraim tells us not to do here, which is ordering people around, getting them, breaking their will by forcing them to do something. So something more like the Marines, you know, giving orders so to get people to do everything at the same, at the same time. And, uh, but in Christianity, you know, our obedience is to be, again, like that of Christ. He shows us what perfect obedience looks like and what it is for a person to be driven by obedience and this obedient love, that he sets aside his will, he becomes a slave, a servant to all, and becomes obedient himself even unto death on the cross, that he takes this path that the Father sets before him, uh, even when it, it costs all, and not just death as we would understand it, but embracing and taking upon himself the sin of the world and the consequences for that sin. And so again, what is being put forward to us is this image of Christ. And we have to be very careful as we read through this, not to lose sight of him that he is the standard and he's the one who gives life uh, to these teachings and brings light to our understanding as we try uh, to embrace them. If the need arises for you to speak, tell them your opinion as one giving advice with humility. If a brother objects to what you say, do not let your mind be disturbed, but lay aside your will for the sake of peace and love. And speak meekly to the one who made the objection as follows. You must think me a fool to have spoken thusly, O blessed one. Forgive me, for I spoke out of ignorance. But let it be as you said. Through your giving way, the devil who creates such turmoil will turn back in shame without having accomplished anything. So the humility itself has the capacity to turn back the evil one from turning a situation uh, from being a potential conflict to one of mutual understanding. And um, when we went through 9-11, uh, not long after that, we had a philosopher, a brilliant man, I think, his, his name is Dr. John White, from Pittsburgh here, and he used to teach at Franciscan University. Uh, now he's uh, a therapist, a practicing therapist here in Pittsburgh, uh, but a gentle, kind-hearted man, and one, you know, the kind of rare breed, you know, virtuous, but also this incredibly powerful intellect, and could articulate it with his gentleness uh, to others. And we had him come and give a talk to the students, and the title of the talk, if I remember correctly, is uh, The Philosopher in an Age of Terror. You know, the, the place of the philosopher in an age of terror. You know, what does the philosopher do? What, what does the philosopher bring to the world in a time of terror, when all reason, where understanding has been set aside. And when others tend to be driven by fear, uh, revenge, anger, hatred, or, or the like. And I remember, you know, he handled every question so beautifully and so gently, but there was a lot of resistance to what he, he was saying. And, you know, I think as 
we read this, you know, one of the questions we would ask ourselves is, you know, what is the place of the Christian in a post-Christian age or in an age of nihilism? And what, how are we to engage the world around us? Because we could, uh, in a reactive fashion, uh, respond to the realities of our world as it is, and as it is going to become in the next generation, if things seem to move in the, the, the direction that they seem to be moving. Uh, that, that it becomes an all-important question. You know, what what is our place going to be? And it would be very easy for Christians to alter uh, the gospel in order to justify engaging in this world in such a way, in a way that we think that we need to in order to bring about change or to have an impact or to overcome something that we see as an impediment, an obstacle. And one might say it's probably going to require the most extraordinary faith from Christians moving into the future, knowing that it is a kind of age of nihilism where there is no truth, there is no reality, but what we create for our, ourselves. And you know, how is a Christian to enter into that other than clinging to he who is reality, he who is truth and love, even at the, at the cost of everything. And again, we go right back to where St. Paul was. We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we preach that most of all in the way that we live our lives. We bear witness to this cruciform love in a world that might not believe in love or the truth of this cruciform love in a world that might not believe in, in any truth, objective truth. And to do that is we have to be prepared uh, on every level to, to face hostility, uh, even to the point of death itself. And there will be voices from within the church and from among Christians that will be screaming the opposite through this. And there will likely be from our own hearts a voice screaming the opposite of that as well. Because I think we all have that place where we, you know, that, lo that line in the sand, this, this far and no, no farther. And, you know, that I'm only willing to put up with so much or I, you know, I have to protect myself or I have to protect others. And uh, this is going to call us to a trust in the grace of God and the love of God and his providence as the Lord of, of life, of love, and the governor of all history. And uh, it's, we go back to the question that was uh, put forward here a little bit earlier, why is letting go so hard? Uh, perhaps we don't even have a realization of just how hard it can get. And uh, I think when we think about things in these terms, we can imagine that, you know, in an age where things can become absurd or an age of terror or where nothing is held to be true, then we, we have to be, be willing to cling to Christ uh, with our whole heart. Any comments on anything that Ephraim has said here? Okay. Let's see. I must speak meekly to the one who made the objection as follows. Uh, so saying that, I, well, I must have spoken in ignorance, ignorance or I'm a fool, that there's something lacking in what I communicated. But let it be as you said. Through your giving way, the devil who creates such turmoil. So we overcome evil, not by responding with evil, 
we overcome evil by responding as Christ responded to it, which what is different, and as we see in the cross, you know, arms outstretched in this radical vulnerability, he receives it and takes it all upon himself in this perfect love, rather than giving it back to others with uh, aggression. And one of the great things that they wanted him to be was a worldly leader and uh, ruler who could raise up an army. You know, he fed 5,000 multiple times that here's one who could overcome the oppressor, the Romans. And yet he would not have it. Uh, Louise writes, we have to be ready for ridicule, persecution, and even martyrdom. Exactly right. Even martyrdom. And it might be a martyrdom not like any other age experienced it. It's going to be uh, something that's unique to our own, own time. And so our minds and our hearts have to be prepared uh, for it. If you argue and insist on your will being done, you provoke disturbances and an anger that is hard to treat. The scripture says, anger will rest in the bosom of the ungodly. And in another place, it says, the sway of his anger shall be his downfall. This is why the apostle instructs us, the apostle Paul instructs us, and the servant of the Lord must not strive. So, again, you know, I think this confronts us with, with something that is very hard to embrace. The servant of the Lord must not strive that in the sense that we don't seek to use anger against the other and that we don't agonize about anything other than what is most important, entering by the narrow way, the narrow gate. That's what Christ tells us to strive, strive for, strive to enter by the narrow way. And so we are not to strive to assert anything else or to take any other path for us other than that of Christ and the cross, that he's the one who's laid out the path for us. And again, it's ever so tempting for us to feel that we see things clearly. And, you know, the evil one will use this in so many different ways. We will be able to see a great deal of truth about certain circumstances, individuals, groups, whatever it might be. He'll, we'll be allowed to perhaps to have great insight to many different things, but he can still use that, the very insight that we are allowed to have in order to draw us into an evil act that only then manifest the fullness of the truth after we've taken the wrong path forward. The fullness of the truth comes forward, the very things that were hidden to us or that we were blinded to because of our own pride, that we were so sure because we so, saw so much truth of something in our own eyes, that we saw the full truth and all the ends that only God could see, that we take the prerogative that belongs to God only and we seize it for ourselves and we make that judgment of how things should go or we make that judgment of the other and so in the process we end up destroying ourselves any final thoughts here about saint ephraim So incredibly, as I said, there's always something so beautiful about these writings, and in particular, as I mentioned, Ephraim, uh, but always something uh, challenging in an unsettling way. It really does, I think, shake us to the very core, to think of our life, to think of discernment, to think of truth, love, engaging others in these ways turns the, the world on its head. And that's what the gospel does. I think it brings back sort of the revolutionary nature of the gospel. It is a revolutionary text and uh, one that is uh, 
meant to, to shake the mind and the heart. And uh, I think there's always going to be a part of us that wants to turn away from that and shrink back from it. And so, you know, just a short reading of this text, uh, I have no expectation that we're going to be able to do that. I think we have to do what we would always do with the gospel as well as linger long with it, pray for humility, pray for light in order that we might see things as God sees them. Then this already itself is a challenge because it means setting aside our own will. Okay, any final thoughts, comments for the night? Okay, I know that, I did, that didn't take us very far, but it was a, there was a lot there to consider. Okay. Well, we close as always with the our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you.